Hi, this is Steve Harkadon, and welcome to the very first session of Connected Educators Month, the kickoff, three-day kickoff uh, for the month-long conference. We're so excited that you're here. This is really fun. Uh, Karen Cater has sent her regards in this slide. Hopefully, I had a chance to read it. She's, she's very excited, as are we, about everything that's taking place. There are a lot of ways for you to participate in Connected Educator Month. The best thing to do is just to be sure to sign up. Go to connecteducatormonth.org and you'll find um, that you'll get a daily email with all of the activities taking place each day. Uh, there's um, a calendar. You can look at the calendar. There are going to be tours and classes and all kinds of panels and sessions all around helping educators connect with each other in uh, these incredible ways that are now available. And if you're tweeting, you can use hashtag CE12 to tweet out. So uh, this this is this session uh, is a particular favorite of mine because it really sort of sets the tone for the conference, and it's our chance to talk about what I think is um, sort of at the core of of what's taking place with peer professional development on the web. And so we have a great set of panelists today. We have Judy Fusco. Scott McLeod, Howard Ryan Gold, Lisa Schmucki, and Tom Whitby. And I don't see Lisa yet, but I'm going to go down and look again and see if she's come in. If somebody, if she does come in and somebody notices, please let me know. Um, I'm going to ask each of our panelists to take 30 seconds to introduce themselves. And in the process of that introduction, I'd like them to answer a question. And the question is, how significantly do you feel that the technologies of the internet have impacted peer professional development? And Judy, let's start with you. Hi, hope you can hear me all right now. I'm Judy Fesco. Um, give me a thumbs up or a sign that you can hear me, please. Um, I started in 1997 with um, some colleagues. One of them is here in the audience, Patty Shank, um, and another one is Mark Schlager. Um, and we started and co-founded an online professional development center called Tapped In. And this was back in the 90s, the late 90s, when most people didn't have internet access at home or at work even in the teaching profession. Schools were just becoming wired. Um, we saw a tremendous change in how people started accessing um, each other as a resource over the years that we were doing tapped in. I can't even tell you what it was like to do trainings in 1996-97 with teachers um, who kind of weren't sure what the mouse was. Some of them were trying to talk into it because they'd seen it in a movie. Um, and, uh, you know, over the years, I, I'm just blown away by all of the changes I've seen. I, I, I feel um, very privileged and honored to have witnessed um, all of the connections that people have made and all of the learning that has occurred. I think that was 30 seconds. Thanks, Judy. We're going to get a chance to talk about Tepton because I feel like it's such an important part of the, the bigger story. Um, let's go to Scott. Scott, would you introduce yourself and address that same question? Hi, I'm Scott McLeod, uh, Associate Professor of School Leadership at the University of Kentucky. I'm on leave this year. I'm serving as the Director of Innovation for Prairie Lakes AEA-8 in Iowa. 
for a year doing some stuff here in the field. I'm also the founding director of CASEL, which is the nation's only academic center dedicated to the leadership side of school tech. And I'm one of the guys behind the Did You Know Shift Happens videos. Um, I think online peer learning is profoundly impactful for those who are involved in it. Um, I think we see near evangelical fervor um, by people who are tapped into these networks and are connecting and sharing with others. Of course, the vast majority of our educators are not in these spaces, and I'm sure that will be a topic for conversation today. Thanks, everybody, and welcome. Thanks, Scott. And Judy, your mic is on again. I know you. There, there it goes. Okay, uh, let's, if we can, can, Howard, can we hear from you on this? Sure. Uh, you know, it's in, um, impossible for me to separate my professional development from the, the rise of the Internet. So I'm, I've been a uh, writer my entire adult life. I'm, I'm new to teaching. I started teaching at UC Berkeley and Stanford about eight years ago. I still teach as an, an adjunct at Stanford, and I started teaching because I didn't think I was seeing universities prepare students to deal with the issues that arise from the, the use of social media in their personal and, and professional lives. So my peer professional development really has come from the online world. When I started uh, teaching using social media, I found that Will Richardson's book was immensely valuable, and I started following his blog and, and followed him on Twitter and followed he, who he followed. And that led me to Steve Hargadon and Shelley Terrell and, and the concept of personal learning networks. So for me, the use of the Internet has been what I've been concerned with since 1987. And I started teaching because of it. And, and my teaching has been pushed further and further towards what I call co-learning in uh, environments like this uh, by the, the use of the technology. And I, I've learned a great deal from, from watching Steve as well. <laughs> You're always such a gentleman. Thank you so much. And really delightful to have you here. Tom, um, how about you? Um, first, and, um, obviously I'm not doing well because I've tried hooking up two different video cameras and neither one works. Um, my name is uh, uh, Tom Whitby and I'm an adjunct professor at uh, St. Joseph's College in New York. Uh, what takes up a good deal of my time though is connecting people on the internet. I developed uh, the Educators PLN, which is a Ning site connecting about 13,000 educators. And I also, along with uh, Shelley Terrell and Steve Anderson developed something called EdChat, which enables uh, educators to connect and, and talk about their profession one hour a week. Actually, it's two hours a week now, uh, at 12 noon and 7 o'clock Eastern time on Tuesdays. Um, that's about it. I guess we're going to be talking about a, a number of those things during the course of this conversation. We will. Thanks, Tom. I'm going to check one more time for Lisa in case she's here. Or Lisa, if you came in with another name, uh, please do raise your hand. That's the third icon over in the participant window, so we know you're here and we can give you the microphone. But for the time being, we seem to be missing Lisa Schmookie. So um, what I'd like to do is uh, address a series of questions. For each one, I'm going to direct it to an individual member of the panel. 
And then if another member of the panel would like to respond to that same question, what I'll ask you panelists to do is to raise your hand and let me know that you'd like to do a follow-up. So I want to start with Howard. Uh, Howard, you've played in connectedness and media and pedagogy for a long time. Um, what digital literacies do you see as being critical for educators today? Uh, boy, um, critical for educators. You know, I think the, the, there's a, a parallel to the, the literacy of, of knowing how to use the online media with the, 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 the pedagogy that, that it enables, that I, I always have to start with thinking about what is the role of the, the media we're using in, in pedagogy. And in my case, and you know, in my observations of others, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is general. The, the, the biggest, most important lesson is that the technology is a factor that enables us to introduce students to taking more responsibility for their learning. The, the, the whole broadcast era business of the the teacher lecturing, you know, I don't have to get into that for, for this crowd. I think we all know that, that students have access that they never had before. We used to be their access. The teacher and the library was their access. They now have their access in their pockets. So, you know, I would, I would say in, as a, just a, a, a blanket, very general statement, being aware that the students, whether they know how to use it or not, have the capability of connecting with each other and with the whole network of online resources at any time, including while they're in class. So, uh, you know, I think that that's, uh, it's, it's important to acknowledge that. You just, you simply can't have your, your head in the sand about uh, that. And, and I think then the, the, the next step is, is being aware of the, the magnetic attraction that these screens have to people and to deal with the, the, the issue of attention literacy with, with students. If you are in, the, in, in higher education where the students can have their laptops open in class, you absolutely have to deal with the issue. If you are in K-12 where students have less freedom, but believe me, they are still connected, I think that's still an ideal time to talk about it. And as you know, I'm very interested in a, a whole set of literacies that I, I wrote about in my recent book, attention, craft detection, participation, collaboration, and network awareness. So I, I think emphasis on this critical consumption of information, if you want, want to be a little bit more polite when talking to the PTA, craft detection, if you want to follow Hemingway on that, the ability to make your own decisions rather than re relying entirely on authority about the information that you find online, I think is absolutely essential for, for students and, and I think therefore for educators. I'm really interested in that parallel between the student world and the, and the teacher world and especially this self-direction or, or what might be called agency. Does anybody else want to address this uh, question of what, what's sort of critical for educators right now? 
So no one on the panel seems to be responding, but if you want to, panelists, you can just, if you're looking at the third icon over in the participant window to raise your hand to add to that uh, question. Um, Judy, I, I wonder if you would tell us briefly about tapped in, the potential that you saw at that time, and are there lessons from that project that you would want to make sure that in the sort of next iteration of connecting educators uh, that we're particularly, that we stay particularly aware of? So um, I don't want to go back too far um, and do too much of a history lesson, but um, we started tapped in, you know, as I mentioned earlier, back when the internet was still not ubiquitous. Um, it's nearly there now, if it isn't already. Um, and when we when we started, teachers were really unconnected, and there was only one form of professional development, that fun one-shot, you know, day-long workshop when you went and you thought you were learning a whole bunch of really interesting stuff and you went back to your classroom and you couldn't remember anything. Um, so Tapton came along to help address that problem. We wanted people to be connected to each other if they wanted 24-7 and in a lifelong um, manner. We wanted, we created Tapton and we had this concept of teachers would have offices in the Tapton virtual building um, where they would be centered and they could keep all of their work and they could collaborate with others, they could collaborate with students if they wanted to, um, and they, and in the Tapton building as well, there would be organizations with whom they worked to get some expert support. Um, and I really liked that model then, and I still really like the model now, because to me it should be about the learner, centering around the learner and meeting the learner's needs when they need new information, new, ex new support and um, expertise. Um, they should be able to get in touch with their colleagues quickly to have those chats, those real-time discussions, and to leave each other quick little messages. Um, and that was really the vision that we had and we began to create, you know, back in a, in a MOO, if you guys know what a MOO is, um, you get extra credit points, I believe. Um, and Steve will hand out those at the end of the session. Um, but we created a MOO where people could do all of those real-time interactions. And then as the web grew and changed, um, we were able to use um, different technologies. And I think I've just done the history lesson part, Steve. Um, and I'm not, and I can't remember what your second part of the question was. So could you help and remind me? Absolutely. Actually, I'm really glad for the history lesson because I worry that uh, sometimes in our enthusiasm, we don't go back to those who have learned significant lessons and have really paved the way for a lot of this. So I'm interested in what lessons you feel you may have learned from Tapped In that you would want to make sure we really pay attention to now. Uh, so um, working with so many different projects along the way, um, I was privileged to work with uh, countless. Um, it was very tiring back then. Um, but working with so many different projects and helping develop different models. I mean, I think that 
I read a lot of folks who are saying the same things that, you know, we experienced, um, that you really have to situate the professional development with what the learners need. And I think that that's a lesson that people are not forgetting. So that's delightful. Um, I think that one of the things I don't read enough um, that, you know, we were guilty of it as well is that professional development needs to include a component, I feel, where, you know, there's a, a, a time when you're learning and then there's also a very important time when you're reflecting and evaluating on that learning. Um, and I've seen, I mean, in, in models that I've created to do that, I mean, I, I, I find that the project sticks more. Um, and when I'm, I'm getting a little more formal in terms of a model for professional development than just connecting folks, but um, when you can have someone looking over the work, not in a not in a um, formal professor, professorial way, but in a collegial way, you get more out of it because you start getting questions about your work. So I think that making sure we give people a chance not just to get the information we need, but that we get that chance to share what we've done and have that time for back and forth on what worked and what didn't work. And to be critical and honest about what worked and what didn't work is, um, is a lesson that I saw that came out of the really successful projects um, and the ones where things made more of an impact. So I think that's one of my my biggest um, I, uh, lessons that 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 I would want to ensure that as we continue to go forward, we keep that in mind. So there's a lot of chat taking place right now, and if you're struggling to to watch it skip by your screen, you can actually pull that chat box out. Click on the top of it and pull it out onto your screen. You can make it larger. I, I'm sorry, I should have told you that earlier but for those of you who are trying to follow the chat. And there's a lot of really good chat that will make it a little bit easier. And then you can actually increase the size of that box. So part of what I hear uh, Judy saying that I think is so interesting is that there's an element of authentic feedback um, and the need for realistically looking at what, what's working and what's not. Um, is there anybody else on the panel who would want to comment on that? Um, just as we we believe there's a benefit to students to having an authentic audience and actual feedback, is part of what's taking place now in this connected peer professional development, is part of the value of this feedback and are we seeing enough of it? And again, there we go. Howard, go ahead. Well, you know, feedback from students to, to me is only partially useful when you get their anonymous evaluations at the end of the term, that doesn't really help you during the term. So I think, you know, whether irrespective of technology, but I think particularly with the introduction of technology, since it's, it's new to, the, to many of the, the students, I think it's important to have a continuing dialogue with the students about what you're doing with the technology and the learning and what's working and and what's not working, there's a, a, a thread in the chat about reflection. And I think that modeling that kind of reflection 
as a teacher is very important for the learners to show that you are you know what you're doing, but you are experimenting. And you're not afraid to fail, and you are reflecting on what's working and, and what's not working. That, I think, is an essential not only to the, the teacher learning how to adjust practices and, and learning how to best use the technology and, and how to teach more effectively, but it's also, I think, an important lesson for the the students about it's, you're modeling what you need to ask them, which is to reflect on their learning. Thank you, Howard. And for those of you who, who might be interested, the chat is all recorded. So the full the full Blackboard Collaborate recording will have the chat. You can also save the chat. We've got a couple here who've responded, uh, although the orders have switched. I think Scott, you may have raised your hand first. Did you want to respond as well? Sure, I can now, or I can defer to Tom. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. I think we are seeing um, a bit of dialogue and feedback and even pushback in these online peer sharing spaces. Um, and of course, there's also a lot of echo chamber going on and a lot of a lot of mutual support. But I'm actually have been really surprised by the willingness of people that I've never met face to face to push me and challenge me and contradict me and stretch me. Um, in ways that I don't get locally. And I think, you know, we're seeing that there's at least a healthy willingness to challenge and push each other in hopefully mostly polite ways um, in these online spaces that maybe we often don't get in our face-to-face -face peer environments because uh, maybe we're overly polite or there's not that culture of pushback and feedback and challenge uh, in your local geographically bound um, workspace, but I'm, I'm, I'm finding, at least for me, and I think for many others, that they would say that there's a, often a very healthy dialogue um, that stretches people in, in these online spaces. So I'll stop with that. Thanks, Scott. Tom? Um, um, I, I just want to, you know, many people talk about um, using these spaces for professional development, and I don't really see it as, as a direct professional development. but I see this as a place to get a direction or to get a focus or to get a support from from other people. It's it's not as if you can you can get online and learn how to do something right then and there. But it, it does give us um, answers and it gives us questions. We can go back to uh, our own IT people, for instance, who have been saying, well, you, you can't do that because, you know, and then they give us three reasons. And then we find out that somebody else has been doing exactly what we want to do, and they tell us how they do it. So it gives us a reason to go back to those IT people and say, so-and-so is doing it this way. Why can't I do it? Um, and I think that has been very, very helpful. It's more the transparency that it gives the entire system that, that I think is, is a benefit here. Do you think that in the same way that students can be nervous about publishing to an authentic audience and getting feedback, are teachers maybe even more nervous about that? Uh, Judy, you don't have to necessarily answer that question, but I know you wanted to respond. And then if anybody else wants to, to respond on the teacher nervousness, please feel free to. Also, Tom's hand is still. That's OK, Tom. You, there we go. Go ahead, Judy. So Judy, we're not hearing you. I think your mic 
is off. I'm not sure you know that it's off. Can you hear me now? There I you think are. I'm back on. Yeah, I said some brilliant things, so you're just going to have to trust <laughs> me, and we'll move on. Um, no, I said um, that I think that everyone gets nervous when they put themselves out there. Um, I do, and I think that that's natural, and I think that that's probably one of the best places to be in when you're learning, um, because I think I think it's a I think it's a natural state for the learning process. Um, so I think that when we are uncomfortable, you know, we are uncomfortable for a reason. Maybe something isn't going quite right, and we do need that feedback from others. So if, we, if we're comfortable all the time, I'm thinking things probably aren't going super well. Um, I think that we should always be working to improve, and I think that that's a really difficult place to be in. Um, but I think that it's, it's essential for our, for our educational system to, to really ask those hard questions and to have those hard, hard, hard conversations and to think about what we need to do different. Um, and I, I think that, you know, Howard's absolutely right. We need to be able to make those mid-course corrections on the fly when something's not going right and we need to be getting that student feedback and we need to be getting collegial feedback during the process. Um, but my, um, my point when I was talking earlier was that we do need to have that end of the piece wrap up and to package up some of our learning into nice, tidy, mm, I, I'm lacking a word here, I'm going to use the word nugget. So we need to make nuggets of our learning um, so that we can more easily access them in the future. Um, so that we know what worked and, and what didn't work more readily. Um, and I think that that's something that in our fast-paced world of the Internet and always having new information coming in that we do forget to do um, because the new stuff is so much fun. But really reflecting on the old stuff is, is key and important for, for um, making sure that we can do it again and for... Um, for moving forward. So I, I hope I got both points covered. Thank you. I had to give Scott moderator privileges again. He, I think he may have dropped off. I really appreciate that perspective, Judy, and I'm, and I'm glad you've reiterated it. Um, and um, it's personally valuable for me. So Scott, I wanted to ask you uh, next, and then anybody else who wants to chime in. How important is it that we start recognizing formally the informal learning that's taking place? And do you have any ideas about how we could do that? I think, you know, we have this phenomenon in, in P12 schools where we have a lot of educators who need to be recognized for, for professional learning purposes. And, and we do that by giving them licensure and relicensure credits. Um, we do that by paying them to participate in professional learning experiences and so on. Um, sometimes those have impacts on salary schedules or um, professional growth plans and so on. Um, and I think the challenge is that here we have these very robust, very powerful informal learning spaces um, that in many ways are much more impactful um, 
than the more formal learning spaces that we provide for practicing educators. And yet we don't have any way of recognizing the worth or power of what's going on there. And so, yeah, I think there's uh, some need to find ways to recognize the powerful learning and dialogue and conversations that are happening here. I would venture to say that educators who are very active in these professional and personal learning spaces would tell you that much of what they learn um, and the dialogues that they have are much more robust than what they typically have in their school-provided or state-provided professional development sessions. Um, and so to discount or ignore the power of that learning um, and its impact on practice, I think, is foolish. Now, the challenge, of course, is logistically how do we do that? And I think that you know we're starting to see some emerging schemes where people try to figure out badges and online certificates and other ways to sort of recognize the kind of learning that's occurring here. You know, maybe um, we start figuring out how to do portfolio analyses of online discussions or network analysis of who's in your PLN or whatever. I, I think we're in very early stages of much of that. But yeah, I do think there's a need to do that. I, I don't know if anybody's really figured out effective or um, logistically sound and institutionally acceptable ways to do that yet. But I think we need to start wrapping our head around that in, in more ways than we're doing now. Is there a tension, Scott, between the value of the informal learning and the desire to quantify it? Meaning, is, um, is, it, is there a little bit of a risk of killing the goose by trying to take the informal learning and have it conform to formal learning? Uh, is it fair to say that the value of the learning is manifest in the work that's done, or is that too simplistic? Well, you know, in our ever-growing desire to hold people accountable and responsible and monitor and evaluate everything, um, sure, that danger is always there. And yet we're also finding with student work, for example, that as we move up the cognitive ladder to more abstract mental thinking, mental and thinking work, um, that we're finding ways to evaluate that, right, through real-life performances, through portfolios, through other sort of authentic assessments. It seems like we ought to be able to somehow tap into that kind of thinking around evaluation and assessment for adults' professional learning, not just students' learning. Judy, your hand is up. Is it for this? Because I'd love to hear from you on this topic as well. And I'm not hearing you, Judy, either you're typing or your mic isn't on. Is there anybody else who would want to address this question of assessment? Um, sure. Go right ahead, Howard. Uh, I hate uh, grading. It's, it's just, uh, it's, you know, personally, I, I don't like it. I, I didn't like it when I was a, a student and was really good at it. I feel like it was, uh, I felt as a student that it was cheating because I, I was really good at the system. And I now see students who are really good at the system. They're really good at, at making good grades. And to some degree, I think that it's an, it's, it's an obstacle to, to learning, it's an obstacle to to self-assessment, and I'm very interested in in peer assessment. And I'm I'm following what Kathy Davidson is doing with get, getting her, her students to do the assessment, and um, also um, Dean Shiresky is doing some great stuff with with students and peer assessment and self-assessment. I feel like assessment ought to be part of learning. I understand 
that the institution requires it for uh, for other reasons, but it shouldn't have to be an obstacle to to learning. People shouldn't have to uh, spend so much energy playing the game that they spend less energy reflecting and appreciating their learning. And I'm, I am seeing more and more schemes and, and rubrics for peer assessment. And what I have seen of evaluation of peer assessment is that the students are honest uh, with each other. They're, they're harder on themselves than, than, than teachers uh, would be. And I think particularly when it comes to technology, to me, the, the most powerful uses of the online technology, like the one we're using now, are for collaboration across time and space. When you're no longer in the classroom or face-to-face or -to -face together, you can still do collaborative projects. And one of the biggest problems with grading collaborations is the, the, the different performance of the, the different members of the team. And there's, you know, there's always the, the, the people who do more than others. And there's always some res resentment about that. And I think that being able to collaborate and to, to collaborate with the, the media that, that we have available is so much a part of our lives now that it's important for people to uh, address that issue. So I'm working on building a kind of self-assessment into, into team collaboration, not just at the end of the collaboration, but at the beginning where the collaborators make a kind of compact or, or contract with each other about exactly what they're going to do and how they're going to communicate, what their milestones are, and how they're going to divide up labor, and regularly communicate about that and um, assess their progress and reflect on that assessment and write about it on their wikis. So the idea that Having clear understandings and continual communication is essential to collaboration can be modeled on this assessment that I think is an, an important part of group projects. One tool that's been suggested to me that I haven't tried yet is that you say to a team, if you, get a, if you do a really great job, I'm going to give you 100 points. If you do a, a good job, I'll give you 90 points. And then it's up to you to decide how to divide those points uh, among each other. So I think that there are a lot of, I don't think that's any kind of panacea, but I think that we need to experiment more and more with peer assessment and self-assessment and, and transparent assessment so that it becomes some more of a part of the learning process for the learner, as well as a, a, a way of proving to the institution that they've done what they're supposed to do. Thanks for that, Howard. Judy, your hand is up again. I want to make sure that if you're trying to talk, I give you the chance. Yeah, now I'm now I'm back with you. I had a I had to fight with the detached chat window to get it to move, but it's all good now. Um, my version of Java apparently is not um, very good for this system right now. Um, so, yeah, what what Howard said. I mean, I think I think most educators hate the grading part of of uh, teaching. It's my least favorite part. I, I don't like having to do it. Um, and school is very much a game for a lot of people. They read the syllabus and they say, okay, what do I have to do? And that's what we've taught them for so long. That's what the culture of schooling has become. And that is a really bad 
place for school to be. Um, and yeah, Kathy Davidson is doing fabulous stuff and, and she's implemented it well. It's going to take um, a lot of us more time to figure out how to make it work really, really well. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the great things is we can see models, that, but then we still have to go back and figure out how to make it work for us. Um, I, I love the idea of portfolios for professional development. I think that, I think that as people are becoming um, more connected and they're Twittering and they're having their own blogs, I mean, you can be developing a portfolio of your own learning right there as you're going in, in your everyday activities. Um, and I think that, I think that we are having a lot of that peer assessment for professional development when people become a connected educator and when people do start engaging in dialogue on the internet. Um, and I still will put in the plug for, I think we need to maybe once a month do that wrap-up blog post on, you know, what did I learn this month? And really reflect on, on, on the whole big picture and, and not just get caught in the details. The details are important, but I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the big picture kick today, apparently. <laughs> Thanks, Judy. Scott, you're back. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on sort of the comments about grading PD. I don't think that's what we're talking about. I sort of said in the in the chat space that, you know, I think to ignore the reality that powerful learning is occurring in more personal or informal online connected spaces is, is ludicrous, right? And and that to believe that we can only give recertification credit or relicensure recognition or, you know, salary schedule bumps or whatever for formal but typically mind-numbing and useless uh, institution-provided professional development sessions um, is kind of stupid, I think. And I think that, you know, I sort of have faith in the creativity of educators and assessment experts and other folks that we can find ways to meaningfully assess more informal learning and yet very powerful professional learning in these kinds of spaces. And whether those are rubrics or portfolios or reflection statements or, you know, whatever else is out there that, you know, the qualitative assessment experts can tell us about. Um, I just have faith that we can do that. And, and to just say, well, you know, the only thing that we're going to give recognition to is this, um, you know, again, mostly mind-numbing stuff that we're providing you as institutions. Um, I think this is the big picture and this is the transitions that we're living through right now. Thanks. Tom? I, I really agree with a lot of what Scott said, but, you know, in, in, in thinking this over, one of the problems that, that I see is, is this whole thing becomes more about assessment than it does about learning, and, and I think that's a problem that, that all education has. Um, I, I like the idea of, of, of authentic assessment because um, if you think about the way we do things in real life, and we're not really educating kids for, you know, what's going to come, we should be educating them how to live their lives now, but we don't use those standards ourselves. I mean, the people on this panel are on this panel not because somebody took a look at our transcripts. We're on this panel because of what we have accomplished and what people know we have done and, and can see the product of our works. So, so I, I kind of lean toward the whole idea of, of the portfolio in that um, grades would be a promise of performance 
and, and the portfolio is actually proof of performance. So um, I, I agree with Scott. I think as, as we develop these things, the, the people who do assess things will come up with better ways to assess it, I would hope. And, and, and hopefully we will be pushing that ourselves from, from our end. So Tom, I want to stick with you for a minute if we can. Uh, do all educators need to be connected in this way? Is it, is, it, is it so important that this is something we would say really should happen for every educator? Um, and, and yes or no, are there ways that you've learned to help educators become comfortable beginning to become connected? Um, that's a couple of questions. Okay, first of all, if it was up to me, every educator would be connected, but it's not up to me. Uh, not everybody is comfortable with being connected, but to my way of thinking, you know, I, I've been in the classroom for 40 years. And, and if I go back 40 years, as, as a content expert, things have changed in those 40 years. And for me to be relevant, I really have to be connected to something in order to be relevant. At one time, we could be connected to the journals that came out or, or you know, wh whatever our professional publications were. But that's no longer the way it is. Those publications are now dying off, and, and the way to be relevant is to be connected. And I, I believe all educators have to be relevant. And if you're not connected and you're not relevant, you're going to be moving backwards. Um, the, the other thing that we have to consider, too, is, is that when you look at all of the, the educators who are connected, if you consider all of the Ning sites, um, Steve, your Ning site is probably one of the largest for, for educators. You, you could probably estimate that there's, you know, giving the benefit of, of people who are actually using the connectedness for PLNs and, and, and for all this stuff, there might be 500,000, even 700,000 or 800,000 educators who are really doing this. But you compare that to the 7.2 million educators in the United States, that's not really a big number, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think this whole Connected Educator Month will, will, will help us out a great deal. The problem is the people that are connecting into the very thing that we're doing now are all of the connected educators and they're not the unconnected educators. So we have to find a way to, to slowly bring other people in and, and not overpower them with all of the information that's going to be thrown at them. Uh, that's the one thing that turns so many educators off to connecting into to any of this stuff because they're just overwhelmed with, with too much stuff. And the, the, worst, the worst teachers of, of, of this, uh, this connectedness are people who are really successful at it because what they tend to do is, is talk so much about all of the information that they get that, that people just get turned off to that kind of stuff. It's got to be uh, at their pace. They have to understand that, that you can step back and work and learn uh, until you understand the culture of connectedness and, 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 and begin to see that people can learn at their own rate. And, and you kind of are in command of your learning at that point because you can branch off and do exactly what it is you need to do to get to know what it is you need to know, if that makes any sense. Are there others who would want to respond to this or two-part question, the first being, should every educator be connected, and the second being, if so, how do we get there? Okay, I guess we'll move on. Um, Scott, uh, you do a lot of work with administrators. How do we help administrators, board members, parents, and others recognize the 
value of what's taking place here, the, the value of educators being connected? I think that's extraordinarily difficult for any administrator who's not already in this space. And it's just, you know, the same challenge that we have with classroom teachers um, is that when we're talking about local level leaders, principals, superintendents, board members, or even, you know, state and national policymakers, uh, many of them are not users of these tools. Uh, they're not immersed in these online environments. It's very hard to understand the, the very real uh, empowerment that occurs for personal and professional learning for both adult educators and their students in these spaces. Um, you know, it's, it sort of reminds me of the parable of the, the, the blind men touching the elephant in different places and they have different views, but none of them can get a sense of what the overall thing is, right? Um, and, I, and I think what we have going on here is that we have people who are marginally involved in these immersive spaces and, and know very little about them, and yet they're legislating, they're making policy, they're doing local decision making and rules and regulations and so on. Um, so it's an extraordinary challenge. Um, how do we change that? How, how do we get them to recognize the power of what's going on here? Well, I think we have to start small, as Tom noted, and try to pull them in in, in limited ways that aren't overwhelming at first and start to help them understand what the power is. I think we have to make connections between perhaps the learning that they're doing at home about things that they care about and are passionate about and extend that to more academic or workplace learning um, in our professional spaces. I, I think we have to show them quite explicitly sometimes how these environments work and how they can be trusted and while simultaneously recognizing the drawbacks that, are, that occur with some of them. Um, and I think we also have to maybe feed them on a regular basis resources um, that are helpful to them in their day-to-day -day jobs and, again, point out quite intentionally and purposefully that, you know, I got that because of my online network, not because, you know, the local educator down the hall. And I think, you know, it's like chipping away at the iceberg. Eventually, we'll start to make some progress and we'll start to dig the tunnel um, and, and build some awareness. Um, but it's, it's, it's a slow and steady process and uh, it's extremely difficult. I feel like the support of this event by the Department of Education has been a really uh, significant moment for me. I feel like this is recognition of the value of connected educators. Uh, Judy, did you want to answer this question as well? Actually, well, I, I very much enjoyed that answer, and I was actually going back to our um, question of how do we get more people involved. Um, so I hope I can do that. Um, and yes, what's please. really what's really nice is I don't really have to answer it now um, as um, the chat window, our chat window has answered it. I mean, getting people started in connectedness is first getting them working. Um, there's a fancy term in, in Raven Winger called legitimate peripheral participation. And that's what lurking is. Um, so how do we encourage folks to lurk and then how do we give credit for lurking is something that, you know, a lot of schools and districts have been wondering about for forever. Um, when Tafton started, people wanted to figure out how to get credit for their participation. And a lot of their participation was just attending a session and listening. And that's, you know, lurking. Um, so how how can we get that credit out there for the lurkers? And that, that's my big question. So I'm going to stop now. 
this is really interesting. And something's occurred to me. <clears throat> I did a session last night with uh, David Dubelbeis about five years of using Nings. Um, so you sort of think of Ning as being the next iteration past tapped in. Um, you know, one of the things that Ning and tapped in, I think, do have done well is to provide for lurkers in a way that blogging um, didn't do as easily. You had to learn RSS or have some kind of an aggregator or reader. So, so it feels like there's an interesting thread there about the value of bringing people in in a in a more passive role and more comfortable role. Any other thoughts about that or about this topic of how do we we are a very small choir, and, you know how do we how do we get to to Tom's 7.2 million? I always found Jolly Ranchers to be very helpful in, in getting people to do things. <laughs> Did I hear you correctly, Tom? Yeah, as a middle school teacher, I used to use Jolly Ranchers quite a bit. And, and if we can get 7.2 million bags of Jolly Ranchers, we might be able to encourage people to get connected. I'm I'm wondering how Karen Cater is going to feel when she hears that recommendation. Um, okay, so uh, I want to give a little bit of an overview of where we go from here time-wise. Um, I want to switch to some Q&A uh, while we still have the panelists here. Then at the top of the hour, we're going to switch to um, an open community discussion. And panelists, you were committed for an hour, so you're, you're certainly welcome to stay, but you're also um, you have permission to leave at the top of the hour if you need to do so. So let's, while we have the panelists here, for sure, let's uh, go to questions from those of you who are participating in the chat in the audience. Uh, feel free to either raise your hand, that's the third icon over in the participant window, or to put a question in the chat. And if you've put a question in the chat that I missed, please um, do feel free to post it again. It, it is hard to follow. Any questions? So uh, Rohini asks, how do we quantify what participants learn or lurkers learn and process and apply? How do we quantify that? Does anybody want to address that question? I think it goes back a little bit to our discussion of assessment. Uh, did, were there any threads of that conversation that we didn't finish up on? Go ahead, Howard. Well, so. Um, I think uh, to, to go back to what uh, I had been saying about uh, modeling reflection, so there's lurking as in not really being ready to step out on the stage in, in front of everybody. And I think it's important to encourage people to find some way to make their participation visible in order to be part of a, a, a learning community in which everyone contributes, but uh, with, with many platforms, I, I use a, a Drupal blogging platform, you can give the individual blogger the access to the access control so that they can make particular blogs visible or not. And I would ask people to reflect on their learning and if they are feeling shy about it and they're, they're not ready to share it with others, they can make it visible only to the teacher and, and themselves. And uh, 
in the chat, uh, one of the chatters, uh, I think her, her name was Karen, was talking about having a, a Google Doc for every, or a Google Doc form for every one of her students in which at the end of the week they did a self-assessment that was for the teacher's eyes only and the teacher responded to that. So I think people who may be lurkers in a public environment are, are very well socialized to performing for the teacher. So asking them to reflect on their learning and what's, what's going on and what they are seeing I think is a, a good step for someone who isn't quite ready to begin joining the kind of public performance that's involved in, in open co-learning. There's a very funny, thank you Howard, there's a very funny thread in the chat right now where Kate has asked for a mentor and Judy's uh, trying to get someone to adopt Kate. <laughs> I would love it if there were a conclusion to this particular session that involved that kind of mentoring. Tom, did you want to address the same question? Yeah, I, I, I have a real problem with trying to, to assess everybody and everything. Um, the reason why, there, there are many reasons why people would be workers. First of all, um, they don't want to make a mistake out in, in front of everybody in the world because they think everybody can see everything that's going on. And to an extent, they're correct. But we have been brought up in a culture where, where teachers are not supposed to be making mistakes. Um, so, so that's one reason why they're not going to get actively involved to begin with. And the other very important reason is people who are, are newly connected have to learn the culture of being connected. They want to see what goes on. They want to see what the process is. They want to see um, the language that's used. They want to have an understanding of, of the, the, the protocols and priorities of, of what it is when you do connect, so, when you are connected. So there are, are many things that people want to learn, and they, they don't want to do it out in the open for everybody to see them screwing up. So the whole idea of assessing workers is, is a little different. I think once somebody engages in the learning and is no longer a lurker, you find that your learning actually skyrockets. It just it just goes up so much once you start interacting with people. And and the community of educators that are connected, uh, the, the, the personalities, the, the reason why they, they became teachers to begin with, uh, they're all very collaborative. They're all very supportive. They're all very um, engaging. And, and, and when I say they, you know, all of them are, I, I mean a large majority. You know, I can't quantify exactly how many, but I, I, I think the culture of being connected is that of collaborative, supportive learners. And, and, and they engage learning, and they engage sharing, and they engage teaching. So uh, the whole idea of assessing people who lurk, I, I think, is a difficult thing to do because the best way to assess them is after they're not workers anymore and they become engaged learners. So, so um, <laughs> this is uh, really fun. Jackie asks a question in the chat about why we're focusing on educators and not students. I don't think we're saying this is an important topic for educators and not for students. I think we're just pulling out a piece here and identifying that a lot of what we're talking about students becoming connected learners should be applied to educators as well. I hope that's a fair assessment, and please push back if, if anybody feels that it's not. But 
uh, it does occur to me again that this is an these are incredibly parallel experiences the, the student experience and the teacher experience the teacher as learner and then the modeling the learning for the students does anybody want to comment on um, the student as a connected learner well just one of the things I talk about all the time is that if, if we're going to be better educators we have to be better learners ourselves if we're going to change and reform the system we have to first change and reform the educators um, and, and I believe in, in modeling the way I learn to my students I can't expect all of my students to be connected and actively working to be connected if I'm not doing that myself um, and, and that's my feeling on it anyway okay so we have about two minutes left uh, before we switch to the community conversation, those of you who would like to stick around, we're just going to open up mics to everybody and allow for a fuller conversation. Those panelists who need to leave are, are welcome to do so. In the in the remaining two minutes, panelists, is there anything that you were hoping that we would talk about or, or has occurred to you that we haven't discussed that you would like to make sure gets brought to the table? Um, one thing that I'd like to see is to have to have that newbie guide of what it takes, I mean, we have it, but to have it more easily pointable to um, if there's a <laughs> official newbie entrance or something, um, I'm not sure what we need, but, but it still feels like people are really calling out, you know, I need a mentor. Um, so let's make it as accessible as we can. And I know we, that's what we do every day, but I also think that walking over to somebody's office is very powerful and saying, hey, I wanted to show you how this Twitter thing works and uh, really reaching out I think is important. Thank you for that, Judy. And if you haven't seen Cheryl Nussbaum Beach's 30-day starter kit, which is on the Connected uh, Educator site, uh, that might be a really great place to start. And I think, Judy, that she's um, on the same page you are. Scott, final words? Oh, well, that's a responsibility I don't want to bear on my shoulders, particularly since I have to go here. Um, but I do want to note that school, many school systems are sending very powerful messages about educators' involvement with social media uh, to the negative, right? So we're seeing a lot of districts passing social media and acceptable use policies for classroom teachers and administrators that uh, are very restrictive that are um, basically send messages of, of distrust and negativity and disempowerment. And I think it's going to be very hard for those same organizations to wrap their head around using online learning spaces for professional development when you're simultaneously sending messages of be careful and, and don't do this. And we're going to be watching over your shoulder and we want to control and monitor everything when it comes to, to connecting with students using these tools, using these tools in instruction and so on. Um, and so we've got some major mindset shifts uh, which are going to have to manifest themselves in, in state and local policy making um, if we really want to realize the true power of these online spaces for peer-to-peer -peer and professional learning. And right now, many districts are sending exactly the wrong messages, if not necessarily in this context, in other contexts. And with that, i got to go. So thanks. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for being here. Um, Howard or Tom, any final words? I, I was just thinking about what, I was just thinking about one of the things that, that Scott said. Um, there there are schools now that are really clamping down and, and coming up with with very 
stringent controls on social media and interaction with teachers. One of the things that, that I did uh, years ago when, when my daughters were young was I moved into the community that I, that I teach in because I like the school district and it also made it a lot easier commuting living in the place that I was teaching. At no time did anybody, when I moved into the district, sit me down and say, here's how we want you to socially interact with the students that you come in contact with in the community. That was never done. Um, and, and now that we have social media and, and we're making contacts through social media, uh, you know, I, I understand there is a difference, but, but there, there should also be a trust in the professionals that, that are the educators of your children that they're not going to do those inappropriate things. Uh, when, when we talked about the inappropriateness of it, we, we've got, if you analyze the, the statistics, something like 90-something percent of, of, of child molestations happen from family members or family friends or, you know, even clergy. And it's not coming from the Internet and certainly not the, the teachers that are involved with students, although those are the things that the news media plays up when they do happen. Again, we're talking about 7.2 million educators in the United States. Educators are people, and there are 7.2 million of them. There will be cases of, you know, bad things happening. But it's, it's not in the majority of cases. So, you know, it, it just bothers me that, that, that we are being looked at, and we're the only segment of society that um, these people are saying, we can't trust you with our kids, which is crazy. I, you know, I just wanted to echo what, what uh, Tom and Scott have said about this uh, culture of fear. You know, it's not only the, the uh, inappropriate fear that your, your teachers um, are, are going to have inappropriate contact um, with, with your kids. And, and, of course, that does happen. But as Tom pointed out, if you're really, really concerned about uh, adults having inappropriate contact with your kids, you should pay more attention to Uncle Charlie and to and to your your neighbors and your relatives. But I think there's also a culture of fear, and in some cases cases it's it's statutory statutory. It's illegal to provide access to internet in your in your school or your school district. The fear that the kids are going to uh, access inappropriate material, which which they do, and 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 the fear that they're going to to cause trouble, which which they do at times, I think is um, very small compared to what we should be fearing about cutting kids loose on the internet with no experience in making good judgments about it and having it, you know, the more you make it a taboo, particularly with teenagers, the more attractive it becomes. I, I think, we, you know, it's, it's astonishing to me the degree to which um, people think that by uh, hiding the internet away from kids in the education system, somehow we're protecting them. The, the very opposite is, is true. And, and I think that parents have legitimate concerns about the internet and about teachers and, and, where, and where are the boundaries. I think that the, the parents ought to be in on this discussion as well. And we, we do have a digital divide issue, but there are so many parents who are spending their time online, professionally, and personally, um, they ought to be in on the dialogue about what, what are your kids doing 
online? What should they be doing online? What should we be teaching them about what to do online? And I, I don't, I know that there are, are issues involved in, in doing this properly, but I think there's a huge amount of denial and and fear and sticking uh, your head in the this, this sand uh, about dealing with the pervasiveness of social media in our environment and and it's not very pervasiveness in the school. I'm glad you had that last word, Howard. If you haven't read Howard's newest book, NetSmart, this is a drop everything, run to the bookstore and buy it book. Um, and I did an interview with Howard on futureofeducation.com if you want a one-hour summary, uh, but the book is terrific. Thanks to Judy, Scott, Howard, and Tom. This has really been a great session. We've been talking about connected educators and connected education and peer professional development. I feel like this was, was a very helpful uh, overview. So we are going to shift to community conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to leave the recording going. So if you're listening to the recording, you now know that we are making a transition, but I think it's worth capturing what takes place here. Um, and what I'm going to do is actually give everybody in the room microphone privileges. And if you have something you'd like to say, feel free to just grab the mic. Um, if you talk over someone, just be careful and, and figure out who's going to go first. Um, but you can also put comments in the chat. And we'll go for about 30 minutes until, or until you let me know that you're done. But I did want to give you a chance to, to follow up on this conversation and to, to keep talking about it if you'd like to. Um, I also want to note that coming up, um, we have at at 1 p.m. Eastern, Cheryl Nussbaum Beach and Darren Cambridge are leading a panel on professional learning and the learning profession. Then at 3 o'clock Eastern, um, I'm hosting another panel on uh, connected education and new technologies. And then we have two, uh, oh, and then at 4 o'clock Eastern, we have the uh, Karen Cater and the past directors of the Office of Educational Technology who are going to be talking about um, how uh, connected education can help the state of education. And then we have two terrific keynotes tonight, one at 5 p.m. Eastern, that's Deborah Meyer, and then at 7 p.m. Eastern with Chris Lehman. So lots going on today. Um, hopefully you, you're, you'll find something there that's of value to you. Okay, so the mic is now open. The chat is open. If you um, have any questions, I'd love to give you a chance to talk about them. I've worked with children in the Global Virtual Classroom Program for close to 12 years, and I've never seen children more engaged than when they were engaged at, in connecting with other students. If we could get our teachers also just as engaged, I think we'd have a great educational system going. Janet, that's a great comment. Do you Are you involved in a particular a program for that kind of connecting? Is there a, a project that you follow that you really like? Uh, yes, actually I am retired right now, but it's called the Global Virtual Classroom uh, Program, and it's www.virtualclassroom.org. Uh, currently I'm, as I say, retired, but I'm the volunteer program manager for the program. Uh, one of the things that the program offers is a web design contest which partners 
three different schools from around the world together who collaboratively have to connect and create one website about a topic of their choosing. So they have to get together, talk to each other, choose the project. The teachers have to be the leaders and guides. The students basically do all the work. So it's a great experience for everyone. Thank you, Janet. I'm just noticing my chat wasn't down at the bottom, so I've missed some chat comments. Uh, the, the Chris Lehman uh, keynote, I'll put the link to the Connected Educator site up here. And and the links for all of the sessions are there. Other comments, thoughts, ideas? Brian's asking if he can if we can help him understand how he can be more successful in advocating for more use of technology and professional development. Does anyone have any examples? Hey, this is Lisa. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Hi, Lisa. Hi. How are you? So good to, to see you and to see some of my friends here. Steve, I just wanted to speak to your point uh, of earlier that I had to do my sound check to make sure I wasn't too loud or um, I had this little middle ear thing going on. So, But anyway, I, I wanted to say that, you know, I spent 20 years or more um, as an educator, teacher, a project director, a school principal, and all that time that I was in my buildings, um, constantly searching, because that's just my DNA, constantly searching, wanting to grow, it was, I hit one roadblock after another, either principals that didn't want to share or teachers that didn't want to share that kept their doors closed. And, you know, I started teaching in um, 1981 when everybody kept their doors closed and, you know, this is my great lesson plan and you're not going to see it. So, you know, when I stepped out of that comfort zone of being a principal and became um, and a social coach for Kaplan, it completely opened my eyes to some of the things that were really going on. Not that I didn't see them every day as I walked my campuses, but and it wasn't until I actually left public school uh, structured teaching working and that I met Shelly Terrell that I actually really began to be connected. All those years that I spent in my building, I was not able to be connected. I worked really hard with my teachers to help them to be connected because I really was always a, a, a leader who felt like it had to be done as a team. And I was mentioning early to, earlier to Ashley that it was like pulling teeth. My teachers wanted to be told what to do, not guided on how to take the ball and run with it. But it really was so clear to me when I left that in, uh, I remember this, you know, clear as a bell that in um, December or November of 2009, I had joined Twitter in January and just kind of let it go, but in, I jumped back in in 2009 and I met Shelly and my point with that is she really mentored me through this whole process of being connected. I just don't think I would have been able to do it as well if I hadn't had her. So my point is that the mentorship that we were talking about earlier, I really believe is key. 
I do admire people that can just jump in and do it on their own, and I think that's great, and I suppose at some point I could have. But she was so instrumental in guiding me through what a PLN was. I saw people on Twitter putting PLN, PLN. I'm like, what is that? And so I really need to say that grabbing a mentor, having a mentor, and, you know, she really uh, inspired me to start New Teacher Chat after seeing a chat really helped me to put the pieces together for new teachers because as you and I have talked a little bit, um, 20th century education is still going on with our new teachers in the unis. Sorry if there's any higher ed folks here. But, you know, I'm right next to a beautiful little college in Whittier, California where Nixon went to school and they're still teaching there like when Nixon was there. So, you know, the mentorship, the guiding, I think is really critical, Steve, and if we're going to move our new teachers that at some point are going to come out um, into the field because baby boomers are going to be retiring in mass amounts between three and five years from now, we've got to really connect them to um, a mentor. And so, I, you know, I just couldn't say that enough, but I'm so grateful to, um, to Shelly for that. And just again, sorry I'm repeating myself, but the mentorship piece is just critical if we really want to grow those 7.9 million that Tom talked about to, to be connected. I think that's been a really uh, interesting part of what's come out today in this session. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the shift from compliance-based learning to agency-based learning, and those are terms that I'm using, but there are probably other ones just as good. But it does feel like it's a larger shift. Um, we're seeing so much teaching and learning take place outside of formal institutions, and we're seeing the importance of, of choice and agency and being the, the, the self-directed learner, and that this, again, is parallel between the teachers and the students. Brian has asked about, um, again, this question of understanding how to be more successful advocating for the use of technology and PD as an administrator. And I would say uh, look at Scott McCloud's work. Uh, look at TCAL, T-I-C-A-L. Um, and, and Scott and TCAL and I are actually talking about holding a school leadership summit uh, toward the end of this year, the beginning of next year, to actually focus on this. So hopefully if you keep in touch with Scott or TCAL or me, that we'll, we'll have something to give you. Um, in the meantime, or if anybody else has some good responses, please feel free to put them in the chat or grab the microphone. Uh, is, is, is it hyperbole for me to feel that we're shifting from compliance to agency and education and that that's as hard on the teachers as it is on the students? Any responses to that? Or any other topic you'd like to bring up? Hey, this is Don Crawford at Ovation, and I was curious about the communities themselves because sometimes you're you're getting a situation where someone's trying to become more connected, and they're looking at uh, some of the communities and the availability of opportunities to connect, and it can be a little overwhelming because they aren't really specific to their exact needs, um, and so. I'm just curious if community design is something that can be more considered and, and, and come up 
um, higher in the level of priority and, and thinking about what are our objectives as we're creating connected communities, how are we speaking to specific audiences, and, and then even how are we connecting with each other in those um, communities themselves. So I think your uh, question is a really good one, and I think it's a part of the value of this particular Connected Educators initiative uh, from the Department of Education. The interesting thing for me about these communities is that they are grassroots created, and so they aren't fully consistent. Uh, and the members of the communities are often the most significant bridges of those communities. Um, there is a, on the Connected Educator site, there is a directory of communities. I also have a, a directory at educationalnetworking.com. Um, but I think you're right. This is as, as this gets focused on and becomes um, more and more accepted and discussed, you know, I think we'll see more and more opportunities for the kind of training and visibility of practices that would, would make that better. Um, does anybody else have a different answer or, or more information on how to find specific communities or to help communities um, do a better job within the spaces that they're in? Yes. I don't so, know if Terry, I have... we can hear you. Okay. I don't know if I have an answer to uh, to that particular question, but I know I've, I've been involved with communities for at least five or six years. And what I notice about some of them, especially in the last couple of years where I've been doing them with projects I've been involved with, they're local. It's hard to keep them alive. The, the small communities where, in some of those communities, we see each other live often, and then we have this community online. And we don't keep the community online going as well as I thought it could be, and they seem to die out. Whereas communities where you're a little more anonymous seem to thrive. So I don't, and that's the thing I'm trying to balance out, too with this project is how can I start local groups to support each other and keep them alive. And I don't know what those factors are that you need. In some cases it's maybe the right combination of people, the right moderators, I don't know. That's it. Thanks, Jerry. Any thoughts on that from anybody? I think you have to start small. You know, Q is very active here in California, and um, most of my Q buddies are up north, uh, computer user educators, for those that don't know. But, you know, it's got to start small. Um, Alice Keeler, who I adore, who's up north in Fresno, she started a process of holding a coffee queue where people could get together, groups of two, three, four, five people. And so uh, I really think starting small, and we started a uh, Southern California coffee queue, only had about five of us join, but it was really, really powerful, and people really had an opportunity to, you know, moan, complain, and then think about solutions together in this little group of seven of us that met in um, in a Starbucks. So I think starting small is really important. I agree, Lisa. Here in Illinois, we're very lucky also to have ICE 
the Illinois Computing Educators. Uh, they have many small groups plus the large ICE conference that's held every year at Pheasant Run in St. Charles. It's a wonderful way to get locally into small groups and start working with people, holding classes, doing mentoring. Uh, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, one thing that, that we should mention, there are a number of Ming communities that enable people in a small way to start their own groups. Uh, you, could, you could use a Ming community to do that. There are so many educational communities out there to begin with. So, so I would suggest if anybody's interested in doing it, start a group, um, get the group going there, and then as the group grows, if you want to branch off and, and start your own, your own Ming community or, or something else, you know, it's, it's a good starting point to do that. That's a great idea, Tom. Did you put the link into your uh, Ning community there? Of course. Any others are welcome to do so in Classroom 2.0. Okay, we have a few minutes left. Please feel free to grab the microphone or put a note in the chat. Gordon says, Steve can speak to experiences with small to large groups, and then and I think that's a network that is active versus feeling the weight of its own size. I certainly think that Classroom 2.0 reached a place where it was really no longer an intimate community, and a lot of people started their own Ning networks out of Classroom 2.0, which was really the best thing. Um, classroom 2.0 probably is a good place to see the value of the conversation and and potentially find people, but Small communities definitely um, provide for an opportunity to connect with others in a, in a really uh, valuable way. There was information that came out this, this year about the number of people we actually interact with on Facebook. So while we may have hundreds of connections on Facebook, we typically interact on a regular basis with between four and eight people. So there's probably some kind of human um, Kind of pattern there, uh, where uh, small is better. Okay, so we're getting close to wrapping up here. I don't, I don't want to turn us off if somebody has something they're anxious to discuss or to ask a question about. But it looks like we may be wrapping up. Gordon's asking if anybody's doing research on the topic of size. Uh, I think Etienne Wenger has a video on the Connective Educator site on this very topic. Jamie, thanks for being a good lurker. So let's go ahead and wrap up. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Please do look at the Connective Educator site for the rest of the activities today, tomorrow. Friday and the rest of the month. And we'll look forward to connecting with you in other ways. And have a great day. Uh, and the way this works is I'm going to turn the recording off and over for the recording to process. We'll need to have everybody exit the room. Just click on that X at the top right or go to File and Exit.
thanks again to our panelists. Thanks for you to you for attending. Have a great day. Bye now.